As a real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Their teams apply local insights and global perspectives to help identify the most compelling investing opportunities. Principal Asset Management, actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff, the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Joe Weisenthal. And I'm Tracy Alloway. So I don't know about you, Tracy, but I would definitely say that when the crisis hit earlier this year and the stock market crashed and uh, layoffs surged, I definitely got pretty intense flashbacks to uh, the Great Recession, the financial crisis 10 years ago. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think a lot of people did. Uh, I think <laughs> right. there were, the, the big debate that was going on at the time was whether or not 2008 or 2020 was going to be like the defining financial crisis for a particular group of people. And um, I think that debate's still going on, but for sure, like we've never seen anything quite like this. And in March, we had a financial crisis alongside a real economy crisis with lots of businesses going into lockdown and, and things like that. And I think that was probably yeah. the, the major difference with what we saw in 2008. Right. And I think now in uh, December 2020 and looking at the aftermath, we can say safely that so far anyway, the aftermath of what we experienced in March and April has really been nothing like the financial mm -hmm. crisis, of course, we have stocks, not just at all-time highs, but um, well above the pre-crisis highs already. Home prices, uh, there's a housing boom happening, which probably not a lot of people would have guessed. You know, the unemployment rate, it's still quite elevated, but it's come down a lot faster than a lot of people anticipated. So that another sort of difference from uh, 2008, 2009, where the recovery in unemployment was extremely slow. Yeah, I think that's right. And certainly if you talk to a lot of people in March, no one would have expected to see the no. rebound in risk assets that we've seen. And no one would have expected that everyone would be buying you know, houses or those people that can afford them would be buying right. houses. Um, I, I do think the big difference this time around has probably been how quickly uh, the Federal Reserve reacted and also how quickly Washington rolled out yeah. that stimulus package, which kind of begs the question about what comes next, because as we're recording this, the next round of stimulus is uh, stuck in political gridlock. Right. We are recording this uh, uh, December, uh, Wednesday, December 16th. There are some headlines this morning that they might be um, close to a deal. So by the time people are listening, we'll probably know. Also, there is a FOMC decision today. So again, we're having this conversation prior uh, to that. You know, in the context of the sort of surprising recovery and how it's not like the GFC aftermath, I think one of the first clues or one of the first people who helped me really understand the difference was our guest today. Uh, we're going to be speaking with uh, Jan Hatzius. He is the chief economist at Goldman Sachs, a role he's occupied since 2011. And it was a note of his, I think sometime in April, making what at the time was, I thought, a pretty uh, extraordinary call, which is that he thought, um, thanks to the CARES Act, and uh, fiscal stimulus, that household income would actually be up in uh, 2020, which is not what you expect to see when the unemployment rate is spiking. And to me, that was like one of the first times I saw someone like really crystallize this idea that 
this is going to be a different year that the 2008 2009 playbook cannot uh really apply to this kind of a crisis yeah uh, I agree. And I, a lot of people follow Hatzius's work. And I do think some of what he's written about recently kind of gets to the heart of the big question going into 2021, which is how is the consumer going to react? Uh, what's right. consumer confidence going to look like? Are we going to get this pent up demand scenario where once we get a vaccine and the lockdown gets rolled back, everyone goes out and spends and uh, makes up for lost time by going to bars and restaurants and things like that? Or are we going to see some sort of permanent damage uh, to consumer confidence after the events of 2020? Absolutely. Well, I'm, I, I can't think of a better guest to talk mm. about to finish up this extraordinary year in the economy and look ahead to next year than uh, Jan Hatzia. So Jan, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. You guys are being too kind. <laughs> so, so talk, tell us about the crash, the crisis from your perspective. A, did you also get some of those 2008, 2009 flashbacks? And how quickly did you realize that that playbook would not apply to 2020? Well, we certainly got some flashbacks in, in March, given the, the sort of lack of normal functioning in a number of of financial markets, especially the bond markets. I mean, there was a there were a lot of comparisons and there were a lot of people that thought, actually, if anything, this looks worse than 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 2008. Now that may have been in the in the heat of the moment while you're going through it, of course, it all, always looks worse. But there were definitely some uh, very, very unsettled weeks when there was a lot of concern about about market functioning. I don't think there was ever the same uh, kind of concern about the financial system. So I think that was a difference even, even going through. I think there was a generally greater degree of confidence that financial institutions were you know, in much better shape, partly because of the regulatory response that we saw after the 2008 crisis. But uh, but in terms of market functioning, I think there were there were clearly some some flashbacks. I think it was also clear, you know, taking a somewhat broader view and not just looking at what happened in the bond markets, that the economic backdrop was quite different. The, the downturn it became clear, you know, very quickly in 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 early March was probably going to be significantly bigger than what you had in two thousand and eight, just in terms of the. Uh, decline in, in in GDP in the second quarter, and the you know the drop uh, was driven by very different factors. It wasn't driven by financial factors, you know, ability to pay or or uh, or asset values, but it was really driven by a physical constraint on uh, on economic activity. So I mean, there there were some similarities, but I also think that it became pretty clear that. The, the the economic environment was you know it was just a very very different shock and you know, had to be really analyzed I think in its in its own right and, uh, and not not really through the lens not too much through the lens of two thousand and eight. So Joe mentioned your April note where you sort of identified some of the differences between the twenty twenty crisis versus the two thousand eight crisis. Uh, more recently, I believe you have a pretty out of consensus call on economic growth for 2021 versus the rest of the street. What are you seeing that other people aren't seeing at the moment and also back in April? I think it it goes back to the, the, the previous question. Mm. I do think that it's a it's a very different cycle. So that's that's really the the main answer. I think it's a it's a very different cycle. It was really driven by a health emergency that forced us to shut down parts of the economy, uh, and it wasn't driven by you know a bursting asset bubble and a credit crisis that that uh, you know might have taken and did take years to unwind after the two thousand eight crisis and. To a degree, to a much milder degree, even after the 2001 recession and after the 1990-91 recession, those were all driven by 
uh, really financial factors and financial imbalances that uh, that took a long time to unwind. This was driven by uh, a um, you know just very very different factors. You know, I think policy plays a very important role as well, as we discussed. The uh, policy response by both monetary and fiscal policy was so much more aggressive this time. And my favorite statistic in, uh, in terms of how that sort of looks in the economic data is the fact that the second quarter of 2020 saw the biggest decline ever in GDP and the biggest increase ever in real disposable income. And normally these things are correlated. When one is down, the other is down as well, and vice versa. In this case, they went, they not only went in opposite directions, but uh, but in both cases to a to a record degree. And I think that really speaks to the enormously aggressive uh, policy response that we saw in the U.S. and in a number of other countries as well. So, as mentioned in the intro, when we're recording this, we don't actually know um, what's going to happen with whether there'll be an additional round of uh, fiscal stimulus or not. But, you know, one thing that we do know is that at least on the aggregate basis right now, uh, household balance sheets, um, they look very healthy. People have a lot of cash. They have a lot of savings um, and so forth. So look ahead, you know, let's say like we're having this conversation again in December 2021 and presumably by then we've had a successful rollout of the vaccine and the economy is fully reopened, knock on wood. How significant is the prospect of fiscal stimulus or how different does the economy look in December 2021, whether we get this extra jolt of fiscal stimulus in the meantime to get us through from now until reopening? I think from that perspective, it's not clear how how big the difference is going to be between a, a situation where we get near-term stimulus and uh, a, a situation where, where we don't. I do think that in the shorter term, as far as you know, the remainder of 2020 and first quarter and maybe second quarter of 2021 is concerned, it's going to make a significant difference. There is a uh, still a strong case, I think, for providing additional support to the economy because in the in the short term, despite the fact that the vaccine is likely to to help a lot uh, and bring the economy back to normal um, to a large extent in 2021, in the short term, virus cases continue to be extremely high, and the economy is still you know far away from uh, from full employment despite the progress that that we've made. So I think. There is temporary weakness that I think is very amenable to to to, to policy support, and there's a there's a strong case, especially if it's you know a temporary uh, amount of weakness. There's a strong case for using both monetary and uh, especially fiscal policy to to relieve the hardship that is being uh, that's being caused by by this by this near term. Uh, near-term downturn. Now, of course, monetary and fiscal policy aren't aren't the right tools to address the health emergency itself, but they can greatly reduce the the fallout in terms of jobs and and incomes and knock-on effects to other sectors of the economy. Hmm. So, uh, on that note, I have a related question. But how much? I mean, we've seen financial conditions loosen quite significantly in the aftermath of uh, everything that's happened in March. How much do easier financial conditions offset the damage to the real economy? Well, easier financial conditions certainly help in supporting aggregate demand. I mean, the, the point of our financial conditions index, which is currently at its easiest level uh, on record, and we have this back to the early 1990s, the point of the financial conditions index is to measure how the channels of monetary transmission, you know, bond yields, equity prices, credit spreads, currency, how they are affecting the, the real economy. And if you're at a very easy level and you've seen a sizable easing uh, in terms of rates of change, then you're, you're getting a, a positive impulse to, uh, to, to, to the economy from that. Um, and so that's certainly helping, but at the same time, we are well below full employment. 
and inflation is well below the Fed's target. So, you know, more support to the economy uh, is still is still helpful. And I would say uh, also that on the fiscal side, of course, uh, if you provide income support to those people in the economy who are most hard hit by the the, the weakness, I mean that. They, they, they generally don't benefit from easy financial conditions. They, they might get a, an indirect benefit, but directly, uh, if financial conditions are easy, that doesn't replace income directly. So that's still right. a job for, for fiscal policy. Were you surprised, speaking of uh, not replacing income directly, I mean, we're having this debate now about stimulus, but we've had a long gap in the uh, expanded unemployment insurance that was established under the CARES Act in late March. That ran out, um, I think, at the end of July. And so we've had this uh, long gap of sort of a bit of a uh, removal of fiscal support. Have you been, were you surprised in a sort of late summer, or the fall, that there was not a more pronounced ramification from the end of that uh, extra expanded aid to the unemployed? Yeah, we were a little surprised by that. We would have thought that we'd get a, uh, a clearer signal. Or, or clearer signs of deterioration. When we look at some of the micro data on spending by unemployed and employed people, we, di- we do find some very clear effects of the expiration of the, of the $600 check- checks. And then we see a sort of temporary increase in spending by the, by the unemployed again on the back of the executive orders that, uh, that partially replaced this um, the $600, but only for a temporary period. So that, that shows up pretty clearly in the, in the data, but it, uh, it, it, the levels are generally higher than you might have, than you might have expected, the levels of spending by, by the unemployed. So I think it, it probably shows you that the initial amount of income support, both from the unemployment um, benefits and from the, the tax rebates, was large enough to provide a bit of a cushion and you know boost spending boost the level of spending for a period of time so it's you know probably still being boosted to some degree by the by the earlier stimulus but uh, that's obviously not going to last for forever and there are some signs including in the in the november uh, retail sales report released this morning that uh, that boost maybe maybe running out at this point mm. so this is something that i'm really curious about but it- how much did stimulus sort of muddy the outlook, the future uh, outlook for for consumers and consumer confidence? And also, how are you thinking about the consumer going into 2021? Because as I mentioned, there is this debate at the moment, are the unusual events of this year going to encourage people to, you know, permanently cut back on spending and uh, raise their savings? Because they're more uncertain and they're worried that an unexpected event like a global pandemic could come out of nowhere and they might lose their jobs and things like that. Or are we going to see this big rebound in consumer spending, the pent-up demand theory as uh, the vaccine gets rolled out and lockdown gets rolled back? I think you've laid out well the two sort of extremes in that in that discussion. I'm more on the on the side of the second rather than the first, I don't think mm-hmm. that there's going to be a uh, you know a permanent impact. I think you know people are going to go. My my expectation would be people are going to go back to uh, spending money on 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 similar types of service activities and service experiences that they were spending money on before. You know, obviously, always subject to their own economic situation. And a bunch of other factors, but I don't think that there's going to be a large amount of behavioral scarring uh, if you get into an environment where the risk of getting infected is much lower or the consequences of being infected are much lower. And I think there could be some degree of pent-up demand for services. I think that's more uncertain whether, whether you are going to see, say, demand for travel and, and, and entertainment actually move above the, the previous ba- the pre-pandemic baseline for a while, I think it's harder to know. It wouldn't be, you know, behaviorally, it wouldn't be too surprising that if you haven't been able to do any of these things, you might do 
uh, you know, you might go to an, an extra concert or do, a, do an extra trip. But for me, the main thing would be that these are still sectors of the economy that, that are operating far below normal. And I think when we have a vaccine and when the vaccine has led to, you know, effectively herd immunity, you know, whenever that is sometime in 2021, I think we'll we'll see a return to normal levels for these parts of the economy, and that that is going to give you a boost to the level of GDP by you know maybe two percent or so if you take it in aggregate. Obviously, much bigger increases in those specific sectors. As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. So I want to shift the conversation a little bit because the, besides the sort of immediate what we're seeing in the economy, you know, Tracy and I always like to talk about economic ideas and how those evolve. You have been a long time, I don't know, you just sort of uh, take, you look at the economy through what's known as a sectoral balances uh, framework, which is uh, associated with the economist Wynne Godley, who's been an influence on your work. Um, I'm curious if you can sort of give us, our listeners, like a brief description of what this is and how that helps you look at the economy and then like how that's helped you understand the economy in 2020 and looking ahead, what the framework talks about. Uh, Because I do think it's sort of a, it's a different way of thinking about the economy than certainly I would say most uh, Wall Street economists. Yeah, it's it's basically a, a focus on especially the private sector financial balance, which is just the difference between the total income and total spending of all households and businesses. And you could disaggregate households and businesses, but I often find it more useful to look at them together because in some cases, there, it's difficult to distinguish between where the household sector ends and where the business sector begins. If you think, for example, of of small businesses and and entrepreneurs, so if you if you aggregate up the the entire private sector, and private sector runs a financial deficit that happens, uh, you know, often on the back of large asset price increases or asset price bubbles. For example, in the late 1990s stock market bubble or the 2000s housing uh, market bubble, that means that the private sector is quite vulnerable to you know, bad, bad developments in asset markets or other shocks because they're already spending beyond their current level of income and are having to finance the, the difference with net debt accumulation. And that uh, can continue as long as asset markets are, are um, performing well. But if asset markets start to turn down, households and firms need to cut their spending relative to their income. That generates a negative impulse to aggregate demand and often results in a, in a recession. And we saw this pretty clearly in the US in uh, not only the 2008 crisis, but also in the 2001 recession. And frankly, we've seen it time and time again in, in, in other advanced economies in the last uh, two or three decades in you know, Europe uh, in, the, in the run-up to the, to the 2008 crisis. Spain is an extreme example. We've seen similar things in, uh, in the UK in the early 1990s and, and a bunch of other economies. So this is something that I'm quite focused on as a warning sign of financial imbalances and vulnerability of the of the real economy, and you know basically households and firms living beyond their means or at least beyond their short term means is um, is a danger sign. And one of the things in 2020, and especially in the 2000, you know, in the 
in, in, in the spring lockdowns in the second quarter that was very, very different from those past episodes was that the private sector was actually running a huge financial surplus and right. much bigger surplus than you'd ever seen before in, in post-war history. And you know, while that's not the only thing that matters for the, for the economic outlook, it was so, certainly one thing that gave us confidence in calling for a pretty rapid recovery from the, the, the sort of March and April lows. So I, I do think it had a big impact on our, on our thinking in 2020. And of course, it was very related to the, the policy decisions that we just talked about, the you know, decision to provide substantial amounts of transfers to the, to the household sector that showed up in the private right. sector financial sector as well. Right. So, I mean, on a related note, since we're talking about financial imbalances, on the one hand, the policy response did help enormously in stabilizing markets and uh, in, in providing a cushion for consumers, as, as we've been discussing. But now with stocks sort of at all-time highs and with uh, you know the corporate bond market booming and uh, lots of other weird things happening in capital markets like SPACs and, and big uh, IPO booms and things like that, do you see an issue of uh, financial instability looming, or do you worry about moral hazard at all? I don't see, I would say, imminent signs of financial imbalances that are mm-hmm. that are that are relevant for for mon- that that need to be addressed. Let's say by by monetary policy. I don't I don't see that. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, of course, you should never say never. It's always something that. That I think central banks and policymakers have to monitor. But again, if I go back to the private sector financial balance as you know one metric of financial imbalances, the private sector is still running a very large surplus past kind of asset price busts that 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 have had really negative effects on the on the real economy have typically been preceded by large private sector. Uh, deficits where you know households and farms were effectively spending too much relative to their income flow on the back of very rapid debt accumulation and and so these increases in asset prices had much more tangible effects on you know people's borrowing and spending behavior i'm i'm not seeing that um you know that doesn't mean of course that there there, there couldn't be any any imbalances and there certainly doesn't mean that there couldn't be Price declines in, in in different markets, but I do think that it tells you probably that the vulnerability of the real economy to these kinds of adjustments is probably lower than it would have been in, in many of these other episodes. That's that's where that that would be my starting point, and it's I think similar in spirit at least to the reviews that the Federal Reserve undertakes kind of regularly, where they look at valuations. And you know, valuations of, of different types of assets. That's one important input. And then they also look at economic behavior and spending and borrowing behavior uh, and, and leverage in the, in the economy and in the financial system. And both of those are important for whether they think the risks are elevated. Right now, you could probably make an argument in, in a number of areas that valuations are becoming more ambitious, so maybe you, you you ratchet up your level of concern somewhat there. But if you if you look at the behavior, the borrowing, the leverage in the in the system, and and, and you're talking about the private sector here, I don't think there are really any signs of that, that would make you really worried. So Tracy always used to make fun of me, but she hasn't <laughs> lately, and now I feel kind of bad. But she always used to make fun of me for always asking a modern monetary theory question on our interviews. But I'm not going to do that yet, but I might get to that in a second. <laughs> but uh, but I am kind of got a hint at that, which is what's interesting to me listening to you describe this framework is that the vulnerabilities are really on the um, the private sector balance sheets. And so you look back at 1999 and 2000, everybody thought, oh, there's this amazing boom. The economy is great. The federal government is even running a surplus. But your framework identified warning signs because the private sector was actually um, 
running into uh, deficit at the time. And then we did indeed have a uh, crash not uh, long thereafter. Do you see more and more people appreciating this? I mean, we still in the media, people always like to talk about the size of the national debt and the deficit. But do you see a greater appreciation of this sort of inversion of that or the concern is really on the private sector's debt and deficit as opposed to the public sector one? I do. Yeah, I think there has been there has been a shift in emphasis and certainly the experience of the you know both the 2008 crisis and the aftermath of that and this this year I think has contributed to that. It's been it's become I think pretty clear that large government deficits especially if they occur in response to temporary uh, you know temporary downturns large but temporary downturns in in, in aggregate demand that those are uh, typically not not nearly as dangerous as I think m- many people would have said before the 2008 crisis and I think this year has made that even clearer because the policy response was that much more more aggressive you know I think on the on the private sector side, I think you you will find a reasonable number of people who've been concerned about private sector imbalances for a long time and asset price imbalances for for a long time, and yeah, we're trying to persuade people that that the private sector financial balance is a is is a useful metric of that. You know, I would say there hasn't been a, a breakthrough on that particular on that particular metric, but we'll we'll certainly continue to talk about it because I think it's a it's a nice summary of you know imbalances that you that that people might otherwise look at in a more kind of piecemeal fashion. And but I think that debate continues. So I'm gonna leave the MMT question to Joe because I know he does want to ask them. I, but I want to ask a different sort of big picture economics question, which is uh, y- you wrote quite a lot about the the productivity puzzle or the productivity mystery over um, the past ten years or so. This is the idea that productivity growth has been uh, really surprisingly sluggish, and there are lots of different theories about why that might be. I'm curious whether the experience of 2020 and the experience of having different parts of the economy effectively shut off has informed your opinion on on what's driving that productivity puzzle at all. Have you learned anything about productivity this year? We have. I have a lot of questions about productivity. I'm, I'm not sure that we have full answers yet. Mm-hmm. In you know, in terms of what we've seen in 2020, what's certainly striking is that. Productivity has done really well in 2020. So if you just look at the the numbers, you know we've seen very strong productivity growth uh, through the uh, through the year. Now part of that is because the sectors of the economy that are still very disrupted are generally low productivity sectors like restaurants and uh and and you know personal services that where productivity value added per per worker or per hour work tends to be lower so there's a composition effect in the in these data but it seems like even if you adjust for that composition effect or you look at the numbers on a on on an industry by industry basis you you you've still seen a pretty significant increase in, in productivity, and the question I think is, is that temporary or permanent? It you know might hint at a uh, better period for measured productivity growth than what we what we've had in the kind of pre two thousand and twenty you know ten or fifteen years. So that's a that's a very intriguing question. For, you know whether perhaps in this in in this uh, terrible pandemic. We we actually have found some ways of increasing productivity uh, that you know will will prove to be a, a permanent benefit. You know, for example, if you if you think about the changes in, in in retail from brick and mortar stores to to online retail, that uh, certainly be something that boosts productivity over the longer term. Obviously, there are disruptions associated with that, but it uh, it is something that. I am I'm very interested in. 
it doesn't the the 2020 crisis doesn't really tell you anything about the key thing that I was focused on uh, for the last several years, which was how much of the weakness and measured productivity growth uh, reflects measurement error as opposed to a true slowdown. I do think that there is a, a very good case to be made that we have gotten worse at measuring productivity growth. There's a big debate about this, but uh, but it does seem to me that the economy is becoming harder and harder to measure as we move away from producing homogeneous goods like that are, that are easily counted in terms of ton, tons of steel and and bushels of wheat towards uh, you know services and and virtual goods that are that are very difficult to measure and where it's very difficult to estimate prices and uh, where it's therefore hard to uh, follow the, the, the sort of national income accounting playbook of counting up receipts and then applying a, a price index in order to get a real output measure and then dividing that by hours work to get a productivity measure. You know, there, there are a number of areas or, or steps in that calculation where you end up uh, having, having, having great difficulty uh, measuring. So. I don't think 2020 has, has really uh, shed any additional light on that, but I still think it's an important issue. Well, speaking of productivity, I mean, I know one theory I've heard people put forward is that low productivity is in part a function of low overall demand, underemployment, companies not feeling a big urge to invest when overall demand is strong, companies not feeling a big uh, urge to invest in new technology when labor is plentiful. How much, in your view, could just sort of pure demand side aspects of the economy play in productivity? And then beyond that, you know, one of the lessons learned, I think, from 2020 is that simply giving checks to unemployed people or lower income people is an incredibly powerful form of stimulus. So I'm curious, like what your view is on just sort of pure demand side policies overall as both the key to the productivity puzzle, but also just going forward in terms of a uh, focus of how that can uh, sort of make the economy uh, more robust and get us out of downturns quicker. Yeah, I mean, I, I totally agree on the on the la the second part of that question. That if you're in a slump, finding direct ways of boosting aggregate demand is is a is a very sensible kind of policy endeavor. And I think we we took a very direct and policymakers took a very direct approach in in 2020, and it has worked very well. Uh, you know, obviously we're still going through it, but I would say the early returns are quite positive. Now, this was a particularly a, a particularly obvious policy in this downturn because you had this huge shock to economic activity, and, but at the same time, it was pretty clear that it was temporary. Obviously, back in March and April, you didn't know how quickly we would have a vaccine, and uh, it now looks even more clearly temporary than it did back then. But even back then, it was very clear that it was temporary. So in that sort of environment, uh, the case for stabilization policies, you know, aggressive demand-side stabilization policies is very, very strong. And I think, um, you know, it is a good lesson to, to take away, even though not every um, downturn that we'll have in the future is going to be quite as clear-cut as, as this one. On the, on the impact on productivity, I'm less sure. I mean, I think there are certainly some cyclical effects on, on productivity through labor utilization and you know, labor hoarding uh, or, or, or shake out of, of employment. So I do think you always want to try to adjust your productivity measures for utilization. And there are some estimates that, that, that do that. The San Francisco Fed provides some, some of that adjustment, for example. Typically, the, once you average over a somewhat longer period, though, which you always have to do with productivity numbers, you never really want to look at, at quarterly. Uh, I think once you do that, typically you find that the, the, the cyclical effects are not enormous and they can go in both directions. It's not always the case that a stronger economy uh, also means uh, higher productivity 
uh, or, or faster productivity growth. In fact, you know, often you find that late in a business cycle, when you're already very close to full employment, firms basically have to resort to hiring the lowest productivity workers, and uh, you know, which is good good in terms of employment outcomes, but may not be so great for for measure of productivity growth. Um, so, so I think the case for you know demand side policies to stabilize the, the economy in the slump is strong, but doesn't primarily rest on the productivity story. So you mentioned the vaccine briefly then, and of course, um, the successful rollout of the vaccine factors into your V-shaped economic forecast for 2021. But I'm curious how that actually impacts your outlook for inflation. And we haven't touched on that specifically, but if we were to see economic growth come roaring back, and if we were to see an uptick in spending, would you expect that to translate into price increases of one sort or another? Yeah, over over time, I think you will see higher inflation in a in a stronger activity environment. So if you're you put more pressure on 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 the labor market, you fill what's still quite a large gap in uh, labor utilization. I think you're going to see upward pressure on wages and you know ultimately also upward pressure on on price inflation i mean these effects you know phillips curve effects you you can show them in the in the data you see it for for wages you see it for prices and statistically they're they're definitely there they're just not very strong and the the, the size of the impact is is not uh, not very large and so you need quite a lot of strength in real activity and quite a lot of pressure on labor markets to get these kinds of increases in uh, wage uh, wage growth and price inflation. So, by our estimates, and you know, we have a an optimistic view on growth. We're at you know five point three percent for for U.S. GDP in two thousand and twenty one. But even with that, we only get to two percent core PCE inflation on a sustained basis. Uh, in 2024, and then uh, that also shortly thereafter, we have the first hike in the in the funds rate, and so that's that's our working working assumption. As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff the Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. So obviously, I mean, over the last 40 years, we've just seen this incredible, um, you know, disinflation. Um, Even when we get an upcycle in prices, uh, the pace of inflation tends to be lower than the previous peak. You don't see it picking up anytime soon. Do you have in your mind a cogent theory for why we've seen this multi-decade disinflation and what policy shifts or what any kind of shifts might actually reverse that on a sustained basis? I would I would disagree with you slightly on <laughs> the downward trend, at least in the US. I mean, I think what we've had is basically a low inflation environment since the mid 1990s where you've had you know kind of 
one and a half to two percent for the for the most part if you take the core PCE uh, index and the peak inflation rate at the end of the 1990s cycle was you know about two percent little uh, you know little of then it was a bit higher than that at the end of the the subsequent cycle uh, this time again we only got to to about two percent but it's it's basically been in that in that sort of range now why has it been why has it been so low relative to prior cycles? I think basically because the Volcker and early Greenspan Fed were you know, very uh, adamant that they wanted to bring down inflation from the 1970s and early 1980s levels. And they, they, they wanted to stabilize inflation expectations at a, at a low level of you know, maybe 2%. but. Uh, they weren't particularly concerned if it ended up being somewhat lower than 2%. You know, there used to be the so-called comfort zone that Fed officials talked about, which was 1% to 2% for the, the PCE index. So, you know, effectively, I think they got what they, what they wanted. And then over time, in recent years, I think the, the Fed and any macroeconomists have thought, well, what we wanted at the time is probably a little bit low because the neutral interest rate is, the real interest rate is significantly lower than it was before. And if we only have average inflation of 1% to 2%, we, we may have uh, too little room to, to cut rates and ease policy in response to, to a slump. So we want to make sure that you know, we at least average 2%. Uh, rather than average one and a half percent to give ourselves a little bit more room, and I think that's that's the thinking behind the framework review that we got from the Fed this uh, this summer. You know, 2020 was full of surprises, and I don't think a lot of people had a, a global pandemic necessarily on on their their list of um, major risks uh, to their economic outlooks going into the year. But I'm curious for you, what was the biggest surprise of the year? Other than the pandemic itself? <laughs> yes. Like in, in terms of in terms of the economy, the way it reacted to the pandemic or in, in terms of lessons learned. Well, we, we, we saw a pandemic that initially maybe didn't look so different from some of the other scares about pandemics and, and, and other pandemics that we've seen in, in previous years, you know, H1, H1N1. Um, and I think the fact that we had seen a number of scares like this without really large economic effects, at least in the, in the U.S., that, that added to the surprise of just how devastating this pandemic was in terms of the impact on the, on the economy. Back in January, some of the early reports certainly looked scary, and I think they look, looked um, concerning to a lot of a lot of economists, but we also all remembered that we'd heard some of these warnings before, and in the end, at least the economic impact uh, didn't turn out to be that large. So, I you know I do think that's a that is a, a large surprise. I think the other thing that that's been remarkable, we've talked a lot about the demand side of the economy, but I think on the supply side of the economy is you know how adaptable the uh, many structures in the economy really are. If you look at, for example, the shift from you know brick and mortar retail to online retail, you look at the level of U.S. retail sales that we very quickly got back to the pre-crisis level. Even the, the mode of delivering the goods have, have changed dramatically. I think the fact that working from home, you know, for all its problems and all its disruption in terms of individual lives ultimately you know worked quite well in terms of maintaining output and maintaining productivity in a lot of in a lot of sectors i think that's been impressive so so yeah i mean i think there there are quite a number of surprises but the but the biggest one i think continues to be the pandemic itself just going back a second i wanted to clarify one thing um on inflation do you see uh, the Fed's new framework, the average inflation targeting framework, as being a meaningful change going forward? Is this is this regime change, or is it a slight 
technical tweak that ultimately won't matter much? And do you think uh, what are the sort of knock on effects if they adhere by this approach of essentially not snuffing out inflation too soon and actually trying to get it to average around 2% rather than a 2% ceiling? It's a good question. I mean, I think you could say it's a very significant change because you, know, you apply the same framework to the prior cycle and you probably would have gotten quite a bit less interest rate uh, in- increases than, than, than you ended up getting. Probably uh, wouldn't have gotten a hike in in, in 2015, and only a much smaller number of hikes than I guess nine hikes that you, you had subsequently. So I do think that there was a uh, there's been a significant uh, change from that perspective. On the other hand, I don't think that they're going to be willing to tolerate much higher inflation than than they did in the previous regime. I mean, I, I do think it's a it's sort of a 50 basis point kind of shift. I mean, you, you had one and a half percent on average, or maybe 1.6% on average in the 20 years before the regime shift, I think will be yeah, at, at 2% uh, or so. I don't think the, the average is going to drift higher to two and a half percent or to 3%. Um, so from that perspective, I don't think the uh, implications are so enormous. So I guess the, the short run impact on any individual cycle, and especially any backcast of an individual cycle uh, for, for monetary policy, those changes could look pretty significant. But in the long term, I don't think it's a massive regime. You know, you are a sort of um, adherent of the work of Wynne Godley, whose sectoral balances framework, which we talked about, is sort of one of the pillars, I guess you could say, of the MMT view of the economy. And sometimes there are articles about MMT and you're often cited as a sympathist, one of the sympathists on uh, Wall Street. So I'm curious, like your take on this sort of framework and whether you think it sort of pushes us in the right direction in terms of understanding uh, the economy and um, policy responses, like what your view on it is. Yeah, I try to be sort of eclectic in terms of (laughs) what, you know, what we find useful and I do think that when you're in a slump, you know, often aggressive stimulus to, you know, in order to combat that slump, both from the monetary and the, and the fiscal side, and less worry about government deficits in the, in the short term, I think that's, that's often the right policy response. And I think that is, uh, you know, from that perspective, maybe, maybe related to the MMT prescriptions. I also think, though, that when you're, you know, when you're in a strong economy, you're back to full employment and and, and the central bank's inflation target, that the policy prescriptions change pretty pretty significantly. While I certainly agree that a government can't, you know, technically go go bankrupt, you know, if the central bank buys buys the debt, I think the right policy prescriptions in in a full employment economy are going to look quite different from the MMT prescription. So in my view, it really depends on the, on the situation you're in. Uh, and then I would say on the, the private sector uh, financial balance and the sectoral balances approach, I, I do find that quite useful in a, in a number of respects, but I, I wouldn't necessarily uh, put any particular label on that, although I'm, I'm, I'm always very happy to give Win Godly credit for uh, pushing the strength much and, and, and directing our attention to it uh, in, the, in the past. All right. Well, Jan Hatzius, thank you uh, so much for uh, joining us. A real treat and pleasure to get uh, so much of your time. And I'm um, looking forward to uh, reading further your work and see what 2021 has in store. Thank you so much, Joel. Thank you, Tracy. That was great, Jan. Thank you so much.
Tracy, I always like talking to Jan. I was like reading Jan. And like I said, it really was him more than anyone else who back in the spring, his identification of the power of sort of fil- replacing lost income and how big of a deal that would be that sort of helped me see that's like, this is not exactly going to be like 2008, 2009. Yeah. Um, And let me just add, I'm so glad that we can round out the year with uh, talking about sectoral balances and the wind godly framework. Uh, Excellent to do that. That's not not (laughs) facetious. No, I'm I'm very happy for you, Joe, that you made that happen. Um, No, but (laughs) just going back to Hatzius's, his framework of the crisis, like, I do think he's absolutely right that this crisis is incredibly unusual and we haven't really seen anything like it in uh well i I guess all of sort of financial market history um but it in many ways it's this government induced crisis because the lockdowns are being mandated by um public health authorities and in many ways it's also a government solved crisis possibly precisely because of that so we've seen uh the fed come in and um politicians in D.C. come in and and offer either monetary easing or some sort of uh, fiscal stimulus. And so far, it has had a a fairly enormous effect. And that's had, I guess that's had the consequence of uh, compressing the entire recession into a much shorter cycle than it would be otherwise, and certainly a much shorter cycle than what we saw in 2008. It's very controversial. You said this was a government-induced crisis. I mean, I'm sure the lockdowns have had a significant effect, but also the sort of inclination to just avoid getting the virus uh, is also pretty big. Yeah, I mean, I I think you could debate that there. But I, I would look, I'm in Hong Kong and I'm close to the mainland uh, and I'm close to China. And uh, so maybe that colors some of my perspective. But I, I would say, like, it, it, authorities kind of chose to shut down vast swathes of the economy, certainly in the U.S. And anyway, let's not get into that. Let's talk about the economy <laughs> and MMT. You know, no, and all, I, I, I do think like this sort of question of when are we particularly vulnerable is like a huge thing to think about now and also the future. I mean, 1999, there was probably the peak optimism about just the economy and prosperity and everything seemed really good in a way that I don't think We've felt um, in since then, but that was when the private sector started running this deficit and uh, people spending more than they earned in part uh, due to the wealth effect, perhaps, of the dot-com bubble. Also saw that again in 2005, 2006, I think 2007, um, at the peak of the housing crash. And then you look now and you see, okay, house, household balance sheets in aggregate were in good shape uh, going into the crisis. In aggregate, they actually look better today than they did at the start of the year uh, due to all the saving. And so, you know, there is a good reason to think that um, we do have this potential cushion of stability that could uh, prove to be a real benefit in the coming years. Yeah. And also just the idea that household balance sheets look better now than they did at the start of 2020. I don't think anyone would have expected that in in March of this year. Um, And it it just goes to show you how unexpected certain economic developments have actually been. Yep. Uh, Absolutely. I mean, I don't think for all the sort of modeling you can do about, okay, if you spend uh, this much money, then that replaces this lost income and so forth. I don't think anyone could really, um, really have predicted that we this is where we'd be in mid-December 2020. No, and we should definitely have Jan back on uh, at the end of next year and see how everything panned out. I think that would be an interesting conversation. But for now, shall we leave it there? Yeah, I like that idea. That's an annual December end of year Christmas conversation, Christmas time (laughs) conversation with Jan Hatzius. Sounds good. But yeah, let's leave it there. Okay. This has been another episode of the All Thoughts Podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And I'm Jill Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. Follow our producer, Laura Carlson. She's at Laura M. Carlson. Follow the Bloomberg head of podcast, Francesca Levy, at Francesca Today. And check out all of our podcasts under the handle at Podcasts. <laughs>
Thanks for listening. It's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff the Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.